Despite being one of the wealthiest countries in the world, the United States has experienced an ongoing decline in life expectancy since 2014. Specifically, it has been working-aged adults, those between the ages of 25 and 64, who have seen the fastest rise in death rates. While deaths related to cancer and coronary artery disease have continued to decrease, mortality related to so-called deaths of despair, things such as drug overdoses, alcohol-related diseases, and suicide have all increased at an exponential rate, as have deaths from stress and lifestyle-related diseases such as obesity, hypertension, and diabetes. Some have speculated that the increasing mortality rate among middle-aged Americans is related to economic despair. However, the research suggests this is not what is driving decreased life expectancy, as the United States generally spends more on healthcare than other developed nations. So what are the contributing factors to these rising death rates? Is our quality of life also suffering? What about social connections? And what does this mean for our happiness? These are the very questions social scientist Dr. Robert S. Barrett and physician Dr. Louis Hugo Francis Cudi write about in their new book, Hardwired, How Our Instincts to Be Healthy Are Making Us Sick. Dr. Rob has spent much of his life studying behavior, group dynamics, and organizational culture, with the primary focus on understanding the social reasons for why we do the things we do. He has been the recipient of 15 major academic awards for his contributions to the way we perceive and remedy conflict. Dr. Louis, an emergency room and preventative medicine physician, university professor, and former president of both the Canadian Medical Association and the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, has spent nearly three decades helping people learn how to live smarter and healthier. Both are well-known, well-respected professionals in their respective fields who decided to combine their knowledge in an effort to decode the human behaviors that are contributing to ill health in the digital age. The questions they ask include, can our own biology be what is working against us? How does our most primitive part of our brain interact with our current fast-paced technology and culture of overabundance? Are our basic instincts to survive what are actually killing us? Dr. Rob and Dr. Louie think they have the answer. This episode is about our instincts. Are they friend or foe? And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. And David, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Sounds good. We are very honored to have Dr. Robert Barrett and Dr. Louis Francisco joining us. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. We read your book, Hardwired How Our Instincts to Be Healthy Are Making Us Sick and we found it incredibly interesting. It was filled with information, research, science, and the dark sides of our human instincts. We're really happy to have you here to talk more about your book, which was just released. So to start, how did you come up with the idea for this book? Uh, well, we, uh, we started with the idea uh, working together, Dr. Francis Getty, Dr. Liu, and myself, doing some projects and some, uh, some talks together. And we were both asking the same question, uh, why do we do the things that we do? And uh, Dr. Francis Getty is an ER physician, so uh, the sometimes the answer to those questions can be quite serious in terms of you know the medical health of uh, people that arrive on the doorstep of the ER. And for myself, uh, as a social scientist, I had looked at it from the social world. And really, when we started working together, we we found that we had to look at some of the big changes that are happening with our health and the and the deteriorating health outcomes. From the, from the vantage point of both the social science world and the, the medical world, looking at them separately wasn't really solving puzzle. 
So it was only when we laid those lenses over top of each other and we were put our heads together, uh, we were able to start looking at why is it that people do the things that we do? And then putting that into context of our larger society and, and how we are seeing some of our deteriorating health outcomes. So that's really the, the inspiration for the book. Um, that was the kind of the, the seeds of it. And uh, maybe Louis has uh, some ideas on how it came to about. Yeah, I think the, uh, the aha moment for both of us was when we uh, looked at each other and said, you know, the problem is we're running on outdated software. So humans in the 21st century are running on software that sort of got us through the first 20th centuries. And uh, we really haven't adapted to the environment that's changing so rapidly in front of us. So the things that uh, helped us survive for such a long time are now working against us. And so that's why we came up with the title Hardwired, because the instincts that are driving us to be healthy are actually making us sick. So in other words, in the old days, you'd have to really work hard to get food. And if you found some food, it usually would be a morsel of food and you'd be rewarded with dopamine for getting that food. Same thing with water and uh, having sex. And nowadays you, you have access to too much of that. And the body is sort of trying to, I guess, fatten you up for a long, cold winter. The only trouble is there's no more long, cold winters because all you have to do is go walk into your grocery store. You know, 365 days of the year, it's abundance overload. And uh, we'll talk later about the one that really concerns us the most is the uh, rapid social change for our young people, our adolescents, and this whole artificial world that they can create for themselves. And then reality sinks in and they're not who they pretend to be. And that's why, you know, we really believe, you know, suicide rates in this young age group has grown up by 35%. And we've got to start looking at, well, why is it that humans around the world are having trouble adapting to the 21st century? And kind of simple to say, but uh, Rob and I believe that, you know, we're running on outdated software. Now, some people have been able to uh, find their own patches and make things work. But the, you know, the average Joe and Jane out there is still not able to survive in the 21st century. So I, I just wanted to say, Dr. Louis, I love that metaphor of running on outdated software. It's sort of interesting because the, the concept of problems, contemporary problems sort of cutting across disciplines, I think is uh, very, very wise. I know that when I was studying for my master's degree, what attracted me to that particular program, which was a master's of social science, was this basic idea that in order to get to real solutions, we sort of have to crisscross across disciplines in order to look at problems in their totality. So I was fascinated right off the bat from the premise of this book. Both of you gentlemen make some strong points where you take a look at how our hierarchical and social nature, including the way we communicate or don't communicate, is responsible for the myriad of accidents or oversights that can lead to harm in a hospital, which I learned in reading your book are far more common than I realized. You also use examples uh, from the doomed Air Florida Flight 90 and even the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion and point out that these are not problems with technology, but rather social challenges that lead to communication breakdowns and dysfunction in teamwork. You advocate for fostering more collaborative environments where even those lowest on the hierarchy can feel safe voicing their opinions and observations. And so I was sort of thinking about this in the context of the work that Jessica and I do. We both work uh, at a federal prison. And it would, to me, it would sort of be like, okay, we would be friends with the warden. But on the outside, there seems to, there would always seem to be a, like a power differential there. And I was wondering, how do you guys, do you guys have some ideas about overcoming that kind of dynamic to foster this sort of collaboration? Yeah, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll set it up for Rob to uh, hit it out of the park because... He's got 15,000 hours as a captain of major aircraft, so he, he knows safety. But when I do talks for industry, I, I do injury prevention. So I, I started my training as a trauma surgeon, and then I went to Johns Hopkins and trained to prevent injuries because a senior surgeon told me that the only treatment for trauma is its prevention. And that's where Rob and I were doing presentations and we introduced this concept called uh, procedural intentional non-compliance. So, um, you know, why do smart people do stupid things, basically? You know, you know you're not supposed to do it a certain way and yet you can 
figure out a thousand reasons why you should do it that way, and then you get into trouble. So I'll let Rob talk about the airline industry, but I can tell you in the healthcare industry, we're so far behind aviation. And you know, there was a study that came out of Hopkins that said that hospital-related errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States. And the funny thing is, well, it's not so funny, that these are accredited healthcare facilities. So these facilities are accredited by bodies that say they meet certain standards. But the only standard they meet is what the queen calls the fresh paint syndrome. The queen uh, notices everywhere she goes, she smells fresh paint because they know the queen's coming. So they clean up their act and they make everything look good. And most of these accreditation site visits, they give you plenty of warning and they don't measure outcomes. So, you know, that's why the first chapter basically says you don't want to go to a hospital because they're dangerous places. And if the only way not to go to a hospital is to be healthy, and that's why we try and make the case. There's another reason why you want to be healthy because you don't want to go into a healthcare facility and get killed. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, Dr. Liu obviously has a, you know, a, a lifetime of experience in the hospital and sees this all uh, very firsthand. Um, but the stats that we put in the book are, they were even shocking for us, really. You know, in Canada, I think we used the, the number that uh, we had 23,000 preventable deaths. And I, I want to underscore that word, preventable. These are not the kinds of mortality that you know, you would find uh, from, you know, say, trying to save a patient and you try, you know, your darnest and uh, you try this and that, and then the person dies at the end. These are, these are preventable deaths. Uh, so, you know, we use 23,000. I think the latest numbers in Canada were about 28,000. Now, just put that in perspective, auto accidents in Canada are about 2,000 and stroke is about 14,000. So in the States, it's about the same in terms of the per capita. So you're starting to look at around 400,000 preventable deaths. Hospital acqu acquired infections, about 75,000 to 100,000 uh, deaths uh, a year as well. So that's the setup for the, for the hospitals. Now, the tie-in with the other examples that you gave, particularly in aviation, um, we learn a lot from aviation. I have a, a background in the, in the human factors aspect of aviation and the flying side of it. And what we've learned and what we're starting to learn in healthcare as well is, as you mentioned, these are not technical issues per se, not to say that there isn't some technical aspect, but primarily the preventable nature of these accidents is happening in the, in the social uh, domain. So this is leadership, decision-making, teamwork, communication, all that good stuff that we deal with every day but now this is having to be put upon teams that have to perform in a very, very rigorous way every day. So what we did in, in aviation and what we're starting to see is, is this understanding that there's a real hierarchy in the medical community. And I saw this when I worked with the surgical teams as well, that uh, there was an impeded communication amongst the team members because some of the more junior team members um, in the surgical OR did not feel like they could speak up. They didn't have that psychological safety that allowed them to speak up and question things. And the accidents and incidents that we saw in aviation were suggesting that that can become so strong that maybe that junior person sees something that is really wrong that's happening and could potentially lead to disaster, but they still feel like they can't break protocol and speak up to the senior person. So obviously that's not the way we want to run these high performance teams. So that whole power distance element and that authority gradient is something that we wanted to flatten out. So it was important with the introduction of a couple of tools in aviation that we did this right. One of the things that pushed that was a pushback was that, hey, um, you know, I'm the, the captain of the flight or I'm the surgeon here or I'm running the ER. I don't want to give away that authority to someone junior. That's not what I want to do. And that's not what it was about. It's really about getting all the information that you can to make a better and informed decision. And you get that information by empowering people in the team to be able to speak up as well. So that's really important. Other aspects we use were tools, actual tools like the operating room checklist, which is a mechanical way of mandating cooperation in the team because everybody has to answer to the checklist item by item. Those are tools as well. But really, this domain is a social domain, and that's where we're seeing the biggest need in terms of uh, addressing all of these hospital errors. I think it is going to take a real shift in culture for a lot of these organizations to get on board with this. But I think it's such a simple answer. It's such a simple solution to these problems that, that I hope that those cultures start to change in this way where people are empowered to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. It's not easy. For example, when I was on the committee that brought the operating room checklist to Canada, which is an adaptation of the World Health Organization checklist, there was pushback. There was pushback from surgeons. Um, I gave talks on it. 
did the keynote for the introduction in uh, in Toronto on it, and there was pushback, and it was you know this whole idea that you know hey um, I've done this surgery, um, maybe it's a knee surgery. I do this you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, and I don't necessarily need you know someone telling me how to do it. And it, it wasn't until you started to turn that narrative around and say no one's trying to take anything away from the command position in the OR. It's only that you will be able to perhaps make less errors in the future or the day might be saved because you are empowering people to be able to speak up to help you make a better decision. And once you created that kind of that mental understanding that this is not a challenge, this is not, hey, uh, you know, we go, <laughs> we go clockwise around the table for authority today. This is not about handing that off. This is about making better decisions having a high performance team by allowing you, the leader of the group, to get all the information necessary to make the best decision. And once you start to frame it, unfreezing and freezing it again and, and reframing it, that was uh, very, very helpful. And I think that was a big um, aha moment as well for those surgeons. So it's sort of like, if you do this, this is going to also help you to look better as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So no one wants to be uh, sitting in front of the safety jury uh, trying to explain their uh, what went wrong. Much better to uh, have all that information at your fingertips and make the best decision possible at the time. That's really what we have learned in aviation. And that's, and that's what we're trying to push for in, in the healthcare world as well. I could just add something to that. It's, it's, a, it's more complicated though. Many, many years ago, there was a fatality in the oil sands in Alberta and a judge awarded uh, my research team, a quarter of a million dollars to try and develop some sort of tool to try and prevent these uh, needless deaths in the future. And we developed this tool that's uh, it's called mysafetysurvey.com. Anybody can go and you know play with it and see what it does. And it measures safety culture in organizations in 10 different domains. And then it gives the worker a printout of where they stand and the likelihood that they're going to be injured and what they can do to minimize that risk. And over the years, what we found is a reluctancy of safety professionals within organizations to adopt the tool and use it because they actually weren't interested in finding out what the safety culture was within their organization. And it took us a while to try and grasp, well, why would somebody not want to find out what's going on when it's their responsibility to find out? And part of the reason is that a lot of bonuses rely on low safety numbers and they don't want to go and find out what workers actually think about safety. And so it's it's like you said earlier, and, and Rob said, it's cultural. And so you have to understand that to change culture, you have to have a process and you have to understand why people don't want to change behavior. Just as an individual doesn't want to change behavior, organizations have a corporate culture that uh, doesn't want to change. Organizations have a corporate immune system, just like we have a human immune system. Organizations actually have this informal corporate immune system that's designed to protect the organizations. That's another book that uh, we're toying with playing one day, Corporate Immunity. Yeah, I would definitely be interested in that. That's a, that's a fascinating concept. The both of you talk about willpower and how that can help and hinder us with regard to our lifestyle choices and behaviors. Uh, you described it as being limited in the sense that even the most disciplined athletes and professionals use what you called strategic breaks or downtime from this disciplined state to sort of refuel and refresh themselves and to hopefully come back stronger. In some cases, does this involve indulging in a vice in a controlled way? The reason why I ask this is because I started to relate it to the work that I do in substance abuse treatment. And it made me think about an approach called the controlled use model which obviously in the federal prison system, we do not advocate for. But I have have been fascinated and sort of interested in this idea, the sort of idea that the substance use then becomes a very conscious choice rather than a habit that is sort of unconscious, which we would call a substance use disorder. I was wondering to get your guys' thoughts on that. Uh, well, um, I will start out on that one. And then uh, perhaps uh, Louis has some uh, real insight into what he sees in healthcare as well with uh, with substances and how to deal with it. But a little bit of the background, I suppose, is um, when we looked at willpower for to start, what we found is that, yes, athletes made a great example on how willpower works. Because if you think of willpower as as you're filling up your gas tank in your car, you if you just run on willpower all the time and you don't take breaks, you'll use it up and uh, you have to replenish it. And you replenish it by rewarding your brain and body in the same way that you would with any other indulgences. So there's this great experiment 
where they had the, the cookies and the radishes uh, in, a, in a group that they were testing. And one uh, side of the group had the uh, cookies and the other had the radishes. And then they did this big, long math test. And the ones that had the cookies were able to do a lot better on the math test and they were able to last longer uh, without uh, giving up. And the, the, the background theory of the, the hypothesis of that, which they were testing, was that if you allow yourself a reward, an indulgence, that um, it frees up your willpower to now, in that case, be able to handle that long, grueling math test. So it frees that up. It frees that capacity up. So athletes were, are an, a great example because they are at the, it's the top of the, of the food chain when it comes to the, the type of discipline and perseverance that's needed to be able to train every day and then to compete as well. And uh, that requires them to be able to replenish the tank. So uh, they are able, they're experts at, at having this uh, tactical or, or strategic downtime uh, throughout uh, the day. Uh, between training sessions to be able to decompress and allow themselves to replenish the willpower that's needed again to, you know, to hit the training session hard again, or to hit the competition hard again. So in terms of the, how that plays out in, in addiction uh, research as well, is that we have to be able to, to replace the the vice, so to speak, as, as, as much as possible with other uh, healthy substitutes. Now, it's not easy, obviously, to do that. Um, in the book, we talk about how there are some people that can go cold turkey uh, in terms of quitting something that, that is uh, not good for them. Um, but for others, it's very, very challenging. We have a part of our brain that feeds off this in, in a reward system. And we need, as we all know, uh, or familiar with anyway, uh, you need more and more often of an addictive substance to get the same level of effect. It's called a, a hypo-functioning reward system. So you have the same amount, but then you actually get less of a reward, which means you need more of that substance again. So this is the the cycle that we get into. But I think uh, Louis, being in the healthcare world, um, certainly sees a lot of, of this firsthand coming through the door as well. Maybe he wants to comment on that. Yeah, the only thing I'd like to add is uh, I like to go really far upstream and uh, try and figure out why people end up uh, with all sorts of issues, you know, in adolescence and midlife and later on in life. And, you know, I'm a really firm believer that when a woman is pregnant, you know, she has got to be the most precious member of our society. And we've got to try and minimize as much stress uh, for that woman as possible because stress in a mom, you know, creates an environment that actually can change the DNA of the fetus. It's called epigenesis. And you can actually pass that down from generation to generation. And so if a child's born and its mom was under an enormous amount of stress, it's going to have an impact on that child. And then if that child is then subjected to adverse childhood events early on in life for 18 months of age, those are going to manifest themselves later on in life with increased cancer rates, increased diabetes rate, increased mental illness, increased utilization of the judicial system, increased sex trade workers. And we just have to look at that horrific experience out of Romania when they liberated the country and all these orphans had these beautiful little blonde blue-eyed babies that people from around the world came and adopted. And these were kids that were, you know, never cuddled, never nurtured, never breastfed, never given the opportunity to develop to their fullest capacity. And what ended up happening with these kids is a lot of them ended up in, in serious trouble. So we can fast forward to saying, well, you know, in our judicial system, well, why is our judicial system set up the way it is in comparison to the way it is in Norway? where it's not as punitive. Ask yourself, why are people entering into the judicial system in the United States? All you have to do is ask six questions usually, and you can get to the root of what the problem is. And it always boils down to inability to meet Maslow's hierarchy, lacking social determinants of health in people's lives, which, as you know, contribute far more than a healthcare system. And people will always say, well, there's not enough money to do what you're proposing. Well, I just remind you, go look at what the Institute of Medicine said about the U.S. healthcare system and how 35% of all dollars spent are totally wasted. There was a good report that was put out. And, you know, I mean, you guys are spending in the trillions of dollars. So that amounts to close to a trillion dollars that's totally wasted. You could buy a lot of education. You could buy a lot of housing. You could do a lot of stuff for the environment. And you can provide a lot of green space and opportunities for people to have employment, to form partnerships, to volunteer, to have a strong social cohesive network. And if you take care of those things, it's amazing that people are just in better health. The biggest addicts we have today in North America are healthcare providers. They're addicted to disease. The more disease, the better. Nobody's going to work asking themselves, how can we close down hospitals? 
How can we lay off doctors? How can we lay off nurses? And how can we have less demand for pharmaceutical crutches that um, the majority of the population has come to rely on? So, I mean, that's a lot to digest, but I think we need to change the conversation and we've got to get out of our treatment modality and get into a simple thing like offering patients the opportunity to become 45% happier, not through another pill, but the simple act of volunteering. Volunteering improves your happiness by 45%. Any of your listeners out there aren't happy right now? You know, don't go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Try volunteering and you'll see how much happiness that can improve in your life. And then if you still have troubles, then you can go and, you know, look for other uh, causes. But the simple act of volunteering will improve your happiness by 45%. Well, and I and I think that, you know, it's such an important statement that, you know, we focus so much on treatment of problems and we don't spend a lot of time, energy, money focusing on prevention. And and that really seems to be a theme throughout your book, that if we can prevent some of these problems to begin with, then we don't have to focus so much on on how to treat them later on down the down the line. And just to kind of make things a little bit lighter, we were talking about willpower and and this need to take these strategic breaks or to engage in in not harmful vices. And so we were wondering if either of you would like to speak about your own personal, maybe food vices or food weaknesses, and talk a little bit about any specific techniques you use to keep these in check. <laughs> well, Louis doesn't have any, uh, any vices, I can say. <laughs> uh, coffee for me, coffee, that's it. That's uh, having uh, done a lot of uh, time uh, working at night, you know, in an aircraft as well. Um, coffee's your best uh, friend sometimes, but, uh, you know, I could sip coffee all day long, but uh, I become quite aware that would be too much. And uh, so what I do, I guess, is, uh, you know, I have a coffee in the morning, but then try to try to just spread it out a little bit. So I say, hey, you know, it's a bit of a reward. I'm going to take a coffee break at this point. So you're just not it's just awareness, being aware that that your uh, your hardwiring is is asking for it all the time. Um, you have the the biological uh, needs and desires that are constantly asking for it, but to be aware of that and then to to have it as that as that break to fill in that willpower piece as well. So that becomes your your reward, and you're looking forward to it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's uh, you know, for example, I, I you know I'm having a coffee during the podcast, and I you know I thought I'm not going to have a coffee until the podcast, <laughs> and then I'm going to have that nice little reward, and that helps me out. So that's that's my uh, that's my pretty soft vice, I suppose. Yeah, I've got it in the fridge. It's a it's a glass milk bottle with uh, chocolate milk. There's a creamery cheese factory out in uh, Nova Scotia in the Annapolis Valley called Fox Hill Cheese. And, um, you know, just the fact that it's in a glass bottle reminds me of my childhood. The fact that it's like really loaded with chocolate, I know it's terrible for me, makes it taste all that better. And I got to shake it because there's so much cream on the top of it. Obviously, I only get it when I'm in Nova Scotia, but uh, man, I'll tell you, like after this is over, that's the first thing I'm going to go get. It's nice icy cold in the fridge. And uh, it just makes me feel good, brings back memories of my childhood. And you you know, it's funny, because I think you guys hit on two of David and I's vices as well. I'm definitely the coffee drinker in the house. And so just hearing you talk about your coffee, Robert, made me want to go get a cup. (laughs) There you go. That's your dopamine. Oh, uh, my goodness. I love it. And David is all about chocolate milk. So that is so funny. I love chocolate milk. It's one of my favorite things for sure. And we didn't research you guys. That's just a fluke. (laughs) Look at that synchronicity right there. There it is. So you guys talked in your book and we discussed in the intro, the decline in life expectancy in the U.S. compared to other wealthy nations. And, you know, this is something that's fascinating and concerning at the same time, given the trend has continued for several years now. You also talked about the blue zone societies or the ones where life expectancy is the longest. And it seems to be that having quality social connections increases our health, our happiness, and our lifespan. So do you have any ideas on how we can start to increase such meaningful connections in our modern society? So I'll I'll set Robert up again. So for this one, if I was to say to you that there's something out there that's worse for your health than smoking, and just pause for a second. So what out there is worse for your health? It has a greater negative impact on your health than smoking. You know what that is? Loneliness. And that's why the UK has a minister of loneliness. That's why the United Arab Emirates has a minister of happiness. What we're starting to find is 
that loneliness is really, really bad for your health. Yeah, exactly. The You would not have thought about that connection before that something that, that you can feel at an emotional level has the direct impact, such a severe impact on your actual, your biology and your physiology to the extent that it can shorten your life. And now that we're finding that out. So we did talk about the blue zones. We looked at some very interesting things with respect to those, like right down to the DNA, looking at the telomere lengths, the telomeres are like, like the little plastic pieces that are at the end of your shoelace and every time your dna ends up dividing it would it would fray essentially without these little these little telomeres and so the the length of those to make a, a long story short the <laughs> so to speak the the length of those uh, telomeres is really an indicator of your biological age and what they found in some of these zones was that they had really long telomeres so their biological age was much younger than their actual age and so we thought, okay, well, you know, there's diets, there's exercise, there's lifestyle, all of these things, you know, whatever you put in your mouth, how much exercise you take in. But what they noticed was that the individuals that were moved from a uh, sort of a big social environment, big family a network to live by themselves, then returned back to a telomere length that was indicative or characteristic of their actual age. So in other words, there's something happening in the social world. And that became the largest or one of the biggest determinants of longevity and lifespan in these groups. So it's the social element. It's the ability to rely on your neighbors and your family to, to support you. You know, we think about it, we can instinctively understand that. If you feel that your network, your social network, whether it's family or friends, that they have your back and that they will help you if you uh, fall on tough times, that you will help them out as well. That strong knit social connection is, it feels good. It feels good. It's, it, it, you feel less stress. You feel better about the future. And understanding and having control of your future is one of the largest determinants of happiness as well. If you feel that your life is spinning out of control, that you don't have any control over your future as well, uh, that makes you stressed and, and, you know, and unhappy as well. So that is, that social element was absolutely huge. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, takeaways that we, that we looked at in terms of longevity. Now, what we talked about in terms of the decline in lifespan, what we're seeing there, and it does relate back to the book is an issue with midlife mortality. So what that means is that we're seeing more uh, individuals have disease and die in their midlife when they historically might have succumbed to a disease process much later in old age. So, and a lot of that has to do with behavior. Much of it has to do with behavior. So in the United States, we're seeing op the opioid crisis for sure. Smoking, as, uh, as Louis mentioned as well, is just so odd that smoking still is one of the leading behavioral vices. Um, of course, we have all the obesity issues as well and all the, all the negative effects of those. And we also have prescription medication overdoses as well. These are behavioral aspects and they have to do with all sorts of tie-in. As Louis was talking about earlier, like what is the cause of this? You know, is there depression, anxiety? The fact that maybe you feel like this crazy world is spinning out of control and it's changing too fast beneath our feet and that's causing stress and you go to coping mechanisms. These are the underlying causes and this is what we get into in, in the book as well. I'm glad that you brought that up regarding the speed of the changes that are occurring in contemporary times. So the example that you brought up in the book that I thought was really interesting is when you tried to share something endearing from your childhood with your three-year-old daughter who found it boring or essentially understimulating. I was wondering, isn't that true for sort of all generations? In other words, you know, my dad, he threw around 10 cents balsa wooden gliders from the corner store. You know, I grew up with uh, radio controlled cars you know, Atari and Nintendo and things like this. And then you have somebody like my 20 year old nephew who had these much more sophisticated sort of first person shooter games, immersive games like World of Warcraft, these games that take and these things that take so much more time and energy and focus and of course, computer power to play. Uh, so it seems like this is sort of like the natural progression of things. And I was wondering, did you have an opinion? Is this phenomena a problem or is it the rate at which it's occurring that becomes the issue? as you mentioned in your book, which is time seems like it's speeding up. Yeah, it, it is. That is the main uh, argument that we make. So that it is speeding up. The rate of change, of, uh, particularly in our social world, is moving so quickly that we are now creating this maladaptation like we've never seen before. So if you think about it, imagine what the world was like 2,000 years ago. If someone from you know 2,500 years ago was to see that, they'd say, okay, well, I can kind of recognize everything that's going on here. There's some few modern uh, advances. That's 500 years difference. 
But just in one generation or two generations in, of the past generations, we've seen our world entirely change. It would be almost unrecognizable. And we joke in the book, you know, okay, some things, you know, pancakes and hamburgers will stay the same. But the way that we communicate, uh, the way that we are on social media, uh, the way that we are doing the, the podcast right now, the, you know, all of these communication and connection and the way that we live our lives is fundamentally different than it was for our parents and their parents before them as well. So you, things are accelerating. It took, you know, for example, telephones to reach 50 million users for telephones. It took about 75 years and it took for radio. It took about 40 years and for YouTube, 10 months, less than a year. Uh, to reach 50 million users. So things are moving much faster. Now we make the point in the book as well that this is all, not all negative. It doesn't have to be negative. Like we have now information, we have computers and I love technology. I use it all the time. If you have a computer and you have a good Wi-Fi connection, you can read the abstracts uh, without subscribing to them. You can read the abstracts of 30,000 science journals, 50 million peer reviewed journal articles you can get access to. So we have information at our fingertips like we've never had before, but yet we're not making great decisions in terms of our health. And so something is happening. We have the disconnect between the information that we have and our actions. What we're suggesting now in our argument is, is that something is going on behind the scenes there. It has to be something, a hardwiring and sort of ancient survival biological desire and need that is moving us to make these decisions and why do we do the things that we do when we have all of this information to make all these great decisions about our about our health as well. So we, we are seeing the social world move much, much faster than we've ever seen it before. And that's why we say our greatest determinants of, of health going forward is likely to be our social world. And, and that's, that's the, one of the main arguments of the book. <laughs> that sort of leads into my next question and the way the speed of things regarding a while back, we did a podcast episode about the 1938 War of the Worlds phenomena, which was, you know, here in the United States and was a legendary for causing this sort of mass panic, which, as we found out later, didn't actually happen. But one of the things that fascinated me about that, about that particular example was the speeding up of the flow of information. And so you make the point that children especially simply cannot handle this much information being thrown at them constantly as it is often today. Although it seems like the digital age obviously is probably here to stay, but do you see some ways that we can hack the system, so to speak, or use this type of technology in a way that is much more congruent with how we're hardwired versus the way it is now, which is being bombarded with information and that we have to sift through all the time. Maybe I can start with that one. This is something that I learned when I ran a coalition for cell phone free driving. You may remember when uh, cell phones were starting to become very popular and people were driving using them. Uh, we were seeing that there was a lot of more collisions and injuries and deaths occurring. And it had nothing to do with the cell phone, whether you were holding it or whether it was hands-free, but it had everything to do with the conversation. Because when you take a person and you put them in a PET scanner and you engage them in a conversation, close to 65, 70% of the brain lights up. So for you know millions of years, it was through stories that we were able to share where the food was, where the mates were, where the shelter was, where the fire was, where the water was. And so when a human hears another human and it sounds like a story, you can get 65 to 70% of their brain lighting up. So we've got to relearn the art of telling stories to each other. You know, it's been proven over and over again. All I have to say to you is once upon a time, and as soon as you hear those words, once upon a time, immediately it perks up your attention because you want to hear the rest. Because hopefully, you know, as you were growing up, people were telling you stories and most good stories start with once upon a time. And so we've got to learn to re-engage in the art of distilling information into a story. And a good story has three elements. It's short, it's relevant, and true. And that's why I'm a really big proponent of trying to help people to learn how to tell stories. And if you're going to be telling a story, it means you have to be a good listener as well. You know, I really like St. Francis of Sissy who said, use words, but only if necessary. 
So we've got to become better listeners and better storytellers to try and counter, as you said, this bombardment of information that's coming at us. And for a young brain, uh, that actually rewires the circuitry within their brain. And that's why the you know American Academy of Pediatrics really recommends that there's no screen time for kids under the age of 18 months. And yet parents and caregivers have discovered that's the greatest babysitter. Just turn on one of these devices in front of a kid. It's as if it uh, mesmerizes them. And you can see it is doing that because it's literally reprogramming their brains. And that's why there's a lot of theories out there. That's why so many kids have attention deficit disorders, because they've been grossly overstimulated early on in life. I, yeah, I think is uh, I think Louis makes some great points there. You know, I think one of the, the only thing I can really add is um, in the book, we, we like the example of, of using children, because when we talk about hardwiring, we're not saying that that is your determinant for life, although it's always working in the background, you know, pulling the the marionette string, so to speak. But really, it's our lack of respect for it. So if you have a a young brain in a child that's growing, it starts right in, you know, right in the womb, uh, growing from essentially the base of the brain up to the forebrain, you know, kind of where our forehead is, where we would have the prefrontal cortex and all that good stuff in terms of the human side of the executive functioning, planning, decision making, all that, that really doesn't develop till, you know, the early 20s, mid 20s. So this bottom up architecture is characteristic to, you know, human brain development. And if a young child is watching really flashy screens, like in other words, a program that moves faster than real life, it tends to inhibit some of this development as it should happen and gets, they get stuck in almost a fight or flight type response. And with that, they become very, very emotional because that's part of the brain that tells us to, you know, be emotional and, and have that kind of reaction. So we have, they live in an emotional sort of hypersensitive hyper reactive state. And as uh, Dr. Liu said, you know, we're, we're trying to understand whether or not that is now being attached to some of the uh, attention deficit um, issues as well, which we, you know, often just medicate for. So that's part of why we, we like to use the childhood example as well is that you have this hardwiring, but you also have this cultural environmental impact as well on that. And it's important for us to understand how those, those worlds come together. The hardwiring is always there, but if we don't respect that, then that's when we get into trouble. And I, th- I think that that's so relevant. You know, we talk about screen time a lot and, and I know uh, we don't have children, but we definitely know a lot of people that do. And a lot of the parents that I know are concerned about the amount of screen time that their children are having. But a lot of times I think as adults, we don't necessarily think about it for ourselves. And there's a push now, I think, in the media as far as limiting screen time before we go to bed because it also stimulates our adult brains. And that kind of of transitions me into my next question because, you know, I love to sleep. It's probably one of my favorite pastimes. But like most people, I find that I'm rarely sleeping as much as I'd like to. And and part of that may be exposure to uh, screen time later in the day. But even me, I think that I probably sleep more than most Americans do. And you all talked in the book about some of the social views around sleep. And I was wondering if you could enlighten our listeners on why our culture doesn't value sleep more. Sleep is without a doubt, the most important thing we do on a daily basis or don't do on a daily basis. And it has an impact on us. You know, the more you read about sleep, the more fascinating the subject becomes. Um, We know, for example, that nurses that work permanent nights are more likely to develop breast cancer. And it's all got to do with irregular sleep, doesn't allow the immune system to, you know, pick up cells that may have mutated and to um, correct them. We know, uh, for example, injury rates are far higher in people that don't have good sleep. And the list just goes on and on and on. You mentioned it, sleep in our society, you know, that runs 24-7 feels like something that, um, you know, is it's an inconvenience that we have to go through. And it's not good enough just to go to bed and think you've had a good rest. I mean, you have to have a good restful sleep cycle. For a lot of people, unfortunately, they have sleep apnea, so that disturbs their sleep pattern. As you said, people, you know, will be lying in bed, either watching TV or checking their uh, iPad or iPhone or their Android. And that blue light that's stimulating is telling the body to wake up instead of going to sleep. You know, we need orange light to go to sleep. We need blue light to wake up. A lot of people make the mistake of eating before going to bed. And that's bad because when you're sleeping, you really don't want to have your digestive system running full tilt when your digestive system, you know, should be resting. 
So there are sleep medicine specialists out there that could help people, you know, and do a good diagnosis of your uh, sleep pattern. But I, I cannot overemphasize the importance of sleep. And we have to change our society so that it matches the needs of different people within society. I mean, young people are not meant to be awake at seven in the morning. When my kids were teenagers, especially the boys, if I let them alone on a weekend, I mean, these two guys wouldn't wake up till one or two. And that's usually to have a pee and then to go back to sleep again because they're night animals, right? And then they gather as a pack and they go out and do what they do at night and then they come back and sleep. So why are we asking, you know, teenagers in high school to get up at seven to go to school? Their brains aren't working at seven. You know, their brains work later. So we have to find out different people need different sleep habits. And as a society, we should be supporting that. Here's some free advice for your listeners. If they work for an organization and that organization doesn't actually have a a fatigue management protocol in place and one of their employees falls asleep and something happens, that organization can be sued for not managing fatigue properly within it. And most progressive organizations have nap rooms where you can go and take a 15, 20 minute nap and that's all you need to re-energize yourself. I mean, for companies that do dangerous things, I would say never plan a dangerous activity between 1.30 and 3.30 in the afternoon, because that's when everyone's circadian rhythm, by and large, is low. And that's why coffee breaks are scheduled around that time to perk people up. So I'm glad you brought up sleep. You cannot overemphasize the importance of sleep to an individual. Yeah. Another uh, one that we can add to the to his comments is the we looked at the United States state by state and looked at um, where the states that are having the most issues in terms of the number of hours or minutes uh, sleep loss per night. And those states ended up being also the ones with the highest obesity rates and other other issues that have to do with obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes. Those are also clinical relationships that that we were able to un, you know unpack in the book as well. But the social side is really interesting. If we if we kind of hark back to the idea that our social world is controlling our lives in such a phenomenal way, uh, we have this idea of you know fear of missing out. So you you know we put our phones down for uh, to go to sleep at night, and then you're thinking, okay, well my phone's been on my side table for a minute. I wonder what changes in the world have happened in the last minute that I need to check or. You know, maybe someone liked a social media post, or maybe I should like someone else's social media post. So, you know, about 90% of us uh, will either look at our phones or check them throughout the night, you know, before we go to bed. And then about for young people, it's even stronger that uh, peer relationship is so powerful. It's the number one driving force in a young adolescent's life is the is the social peer relationship. So about 25% of all adolescents will wake up in the middle of the night, their brain wakes them up to be able to check their social media, to check the phone, to see what's going on. So that's very, very powerful. And so the, that dopamine hit, that reward that you get from your phone, the oxytocin as well, that's the cuddle hormone, that is the feel-good hormone that's released. All of these things are driving us in ways that keep us awake. So going back to the sleep, it interrupts the sleep, this feeling that you need to be constantly turned on. This world is not stopping, it's not slowing down. And uh, we're part of it. And that's part of what we have to manage. And that's the, that's the challenge. So I just wanted to say to the both of you, I think you just made a whole new legion of fans. A lot of our listeners are younger people. And anybody who would suggest that society should sort of be constructed around their sleep patterns rather than the other way around is going to definitely earn you some points with our fans. So congratulations on that. (laughs) You know, two credentialed experts. You know, where were you guys when I was in high school, for sure? So you had an entire chapter dedicated to risk-taking, and I found the whole idea of risk homeostasis very interesting. So my understanding is that this is the idea that as humans, we get comfortable with a certain level of risk, and then we'll maintain that risk level. The whole idea that people will begin to take more risks when additional safety measures are implemented made me think again about the current pandemic. I think that's on all of our minds. I wonder if you see risk homeostasis playing out in those around you in that context. Do you think that having mandates about group size, social distancing, and mask wearing has impacted people's behavior in the sense that they might actually be engaging in more risks rather than fewer risks? 
I think that let's just start by, you know, identifying what we mean in the book with risk homeostasis. There's, there's different ways to understand the things that we do and how we evaluate risk, even though we may not even be realizing that we're doing it. And we favored the idea that we have this risk happy place that we live in and that uh, if things get a little too risky in our environment, uh, then we adjust our behavior to be a bit more cautious to bring us back into the happy place again. And the opposite is true. If our environment somehow becomes a little less risky, then ironically, what we see is that we become a little bit more aggressive in our behavior to, to bring the risk back up again to a place that we're happy with. And to give you some real world examples, things like ABS in your car. So that's the, you know, the braking systems, you know, airbags, well-lit streetlights, these things that make us feel more comfortable and at ease in a car have actually increased uh, some of the aggressive driving behavior as well, because somehow we feel that, hey, this is just a little too easy going here. Um, I'm going to speed up. I'm going to be slightly more aggressive. And there are experiments that uh, attest to this as well. So that's what we mean when we talk about risk homeostasis, living in that happy place and adjusting our, our behavior as well. So to answer your question, as a general rule, anything that makes us feel either more or less risky will result in a behavioral change. So um, whether it is mandated mask wearing or mandated numbers in a social gathering, these will have an effect. And um, I would suggest that they have an individual effect as well. So what that means is that people are going to evaluate their individual level of risk. Do I have someone at my house that is an elderly person living with us? Do I have someone who has underlying medical conditions, which makes them more vulnerable if they were to get the virus? These are individual cases. And I think those are really what informs our, our decisions in terms of our risk analysis. So I think that's probably uh, ties in more so to the mandate, but perhaps Dr. Liu has got some uh, other examples from the healthcare world. We all have different risk aversion and risk acceptance and risk minimization capabilities within us. And unfortunately, it depends on age. So if you're a young person, you don't have the ability to assess risk. As Rob was saying, you know, before the age of 25, risk assessment is in the prefrontal vortex. And that area has not been fully myelinated till around 25. And that's why young people, you know, like when I used to, I mentioned my kids, they hate when I do this, but when I, when I would come home and we live on an acreage and they would have done one stupid thing after another. And I asked them, what the hell were you guys thinking? As long as they said, duh, I don't know. I know they were telling the truth. Anything other than that was uh, trying to feed me a story. Because young people make great soldiers because they're not afraid of risk. And so it's an area that's new. It's an area that's being discovered and uh, researched more and more. And I think that there's tools out there that are now allowing us to assess the risk takers. And uh, companies that are very, very keen on safety understand that it's important to understand the level of risk assessment because risk is tied into, earlier in our conversation, we mentioned procedural intentional non-compliance. So that's why do good people do dumb things? And that's because they perceive the risk very differently than the next worker. So it's a very fascinating field. Uh, it spills into um, sexual activity as well. So we're seeing, you know, an increase of syphilis rates and STIs across the country. And that's because of risk-taking, you know, when it comes to sexual activity. We see risk-taking when it becomes cell phones and texting, driving fatigue, driving under the influence of uh, marijuana or other drugs or alcohol. So risk permeates our entire life. Like working in the emergency department, you know, I, I always ask people, you know, what were you doing when you got injured like that? And it's amazing how different people come up with, I don't know if it's excuses or justifications. Well, doc, I've done it a thousand times that way. You know, I've, I don't understand how I got hurt this time. So if you've done something a thousand times and you've gotten away with it, then your risk assessment of that particular activity has been shaded by 1,000 times of getting away with it. So it's, it's very complicated. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of implications for that in criminal behavior as well. And us trying to sort of kick in that frontal lobe in terms of treatment when we deal with criminal behavior and the criminal mentality, risk-taking, that sort of thing. So the implications of the work that, that you guys have done, I think, goes a long way. I think that Jessica and I, we really wanted to hopefully end the interview on a high note. 
because it seems like we're in really dark times right now with the current pandemic. And I know here in the United States, we're very polarized politically. I wanted to ask you guys, is there hope for us? In your book, you talked about the Italian Renaissance being sort of born out of the despair of the medieval period and the Black Death. Is it possible that our current struggles might also result in an enlightening of sorts? And how can we use our understanding of medicine and social science together to move our healthcare system forward in a way that is urgently needed for these current times? I view it uh, entirely differently. I think that in the 21st century, everybody should have an incredibly fantastic life where we help to take care of our disabled, where we help to take care of people living in poverty and homeless, where we help people that are lonely and, and sad, where we help people that are in ill health, and where we start developing communities that are incredibly supportive of each other. And a lot of this stuff doesn't take money, but what it takes is vision and leadership where we're able to have community gardens and community kitchens and the ability to share meals, the ability to age in place, the ability to withdraw ourselves from the need for so many pharmaceutical crutches that uh, a lot of people, unfortunately, are starting to rely on more than they have in the past. You know, Robert Putman wrote a book many years ago called Bowling Alone, and we've got to try and figure out how we can start undoing, doing things by ourselves and reconnecting with our family, reconnecting with obviously ourselves, reconnecting with our friends, more importantly, reconnecting with our communities, getting to know our neighbors and slowing down and smelling the roses and, you know, take great appreciation for the simple things in life that don't cost any money, but that actually will make you as healthy, if not healthier than a lot of these medical interventions that we've uh, unfortunately become addicted to. So I think these are great times. I think that the 21st century is when humans can really thrive. And uh, it's important for us to not only take care of ourselves in North America, but take a look around the rest of the world, because there's people that uh, are obviously in far greater need. I know it sounds kind of Pollyanna, but you know, unless somebody has the ability to uh, try and capture it on paper and stimulate the discussion, we're not going to get far. So I mean, Rob and I are really happy that the book's been so well received and, um, you know, folks like you want to share the message as well, because I think we can do great things together. Yeah, that's uh, great. And, and Dr. Lou mentioned earlier too, really this is the combining the social element and the, the medical biological element together. We see that as the way forward. And, you know, we talk about healthcare all the time, but as Dr. Lou said earlier, you know, we really don't have healthcare. We have disease care you know, where we have to present with a disease to the doctor and then we try to manage that disease. And we don't have that holistic preventive aspect. And we use the Renaissance in the book. You know, incidentally, we, we wrote that just prior to uh, COVID-19 as well. So it's really interesting that the, the book <laughs> talks about how to pull out of a pandemic nosedive. And so we, we talk about what happened uh, back in the Renaissance and how there's lots of times, of course, that human humans have done amazing things, but this just happened to be a really interesting example of the combining with the pandemic. So that was a time where we, you know, we really fed that reward system in our brains in a very, very positive way. So we had, you know, the science, philosophy, art as sort of the three legs of the stool that came together. We understood far more about our bodies. Medicine took a huge leap through this, the understanding of anatomy, which then fed into an actual art as well, even the Statue of David is based on some of the anatomical uh, understanding of the body. So this was a, a big leap and it came out of, yeah, these dark times, as you say, and it, and it proved to be a great example of how we can feed our reward system in such a positive way um, in terms of human development. So we really see that we are, as you suggest, on the brink of potential renaissance. We just have to learn, as Dr. Lee was saying, how to manage that, how to digest all that information that, it's, that is at our fingertips to have that real healthcare that we want. And we believe this book is really the story of our times. It really is one of the most important messages that we can have and we can share and understand as, as we move forward. It's absolutely critical for us to get this right. You know what, if I, if I had to leave your listeners with one piece of advice that I hope they can remember for the rest of their lives, and that's sort of a, <laughs> a big ask, but it's um, if you're not happy, try volunteering and see the impact that it's going to have on you. There's very few people that are not going to get happier by volunteering. And um, don't fake it, like volunteer because you really want to do it. You'd be amazed at uh, how your life can change. Yeah, here in the United States, the way I think most Americans perceive time is uh, sort of a big issue as well. Uh, you know, it's so much easier just to donate some money and to say, okay, and to feel good about yourself. 
But that's fascinating. And it sort of speaks to giving something that is probably more valuable, significantly more valuable than just handing over cash. It sort of asks for an, an investment, an emotional investment, it seems like. And I think that that's sort of a really interesting concept that probably a lot of us here in the United States don't really take into that much consideration. But I wanted to just to say, gentlemen, you know, and I think I can speak for Jessica myself. I'll let Jessica speak as well. But we really appreciated your book. You've definitely made a fan out of uh, myself. I think that the information in your book is profound. I think it's going to have a, a tremendous effect. And I look forward to also having you guys back on the show to talk about any future projects that you decide to tackle as well. Oh, I would love to have you guys back. I mean, the book was great. I, I highly recommend all of our listeners to pick up a copy. We'll definitely have links for you guys to be able to do that. But there's really important information in there. And we are just so grateful that we were able to connect with you both. And we've enjoyed having you. And we just wish you the best of luck with your new book and in the future. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure uh, chatting with you guys as well. Well, David... I hate to do this to you, buddy, but I'm going to get my ice cold chocolate milk right now. <laughs> you know, and I have a sneaking suspicion that it is significantly tastier than the one that I that I drink. You know, I just mix some powder into a, <laughs> some two percent milk. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I am I'm definitely envious, Doctor Louis. Okay, thank you both. Well, everyone, we're going to wrap this one up. But if you enjoyed the bit you heard on this episode. We highly recommend you pick up Dr. Rob and Dr. Louie's book. Again, it's called Hardwired, How Our Instincts to Be Healthy Are Making Us Sick. And we'll have a link to it on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. And we'll be back with a brand new episode in a couple of weeks. So be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark so you'll get a little sneak peek to our next topic. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.